We got to uh, verse 34 last week, so uh, we're gonna pick it up there. Gospel of Mark, we mentioned last week as we kind of did an introduction that the Gospel of Mark is fast-paced, hard-hitting, uh, small but mighty. Um, and we've already seen, if you were with us last week, how just the first half of this chapter one covers many chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you want the real fast version of the Gospel, Mark's, Mark's the one. But what's amazing to me, and, and you might notice this, we saw this last week, we'll probably see it you know, in the next few weeks especially, but um, even though Mark's shorter than Matthew by far, or Luke or John, um, there's so much we learn from Mark that's not in the other gospels. Like those little tidbits that you'd miss out on had we not had the gospel of Mark. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and again, uh, it's John Mark of the story in the book of Acts uh, that is the one who penned this. There's debate whether it was Peter who was there reciting to John Mark as an eyewitness to what was happening. Um, but most people, uh, scholars, I should say, uh, see the, the influence at least of Peter Remember, Peter called uh, John Mark his son in the faith, kind of like P Timothy was to Paul, so was John Mark to, uh, to um, Peter. And also, um, uh, Peter, uh, or pardon me, Barnabas was the one who uh, nursed John Mark back into good standing with Paul. Uh, so it's a great story. I love, I love that this gospel comes from John Mark just because of the story that we went over last week. Uh, but as we pick it up where we left off there, let's, let's pick it up here in, in verse uh, 35. It says in verse 35, and in the morning, rising up a great while before the day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. I love this, this little uh, you know, shift. This is a good reason why we ended the study here last time, because it's the next day. So it's almost like the next day, okay, what did he do? He got up early. And uh, I have to say this, I know some of you are gonna begrudgingly receive this, but the Bible does sort of indicate getting up early in the morning is a good thing. Uh, some of you are not early risers. Um, I would venture to say most of us were not early risers, but life has a way of changing that. Um, uh, I'll tell you how, how it changes. Like when I, when you, if you were in my house growing up, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd be so thrilled. Oh, it's Saturday. I don't have to get up for school. But my dad made sure that I was still an early riser because there was wood to split, cows to feed, uh, and milk. Uh, you know, there was stuff to do. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I remember hating having to get up early, you know, when you had days off and stuff. But that was kind of part of the way my dad would roll, you know, in, in our household. And, and, um, by the way, if you notice, um, if you study people that have been successful at what they do, um, you often see that link to an early riser, someone who gets up early and gets things going early. There's a link to that. Um, I know that's not hip or cool to say today, but um, the Bible does actually teach us about that, uh, about getting up early. Um, now, what's amazing to me is Jesus got up early to do what? Uh, to pray. And it's amazing that Jesus even prayed at all, if you ask me, because you know, we, we, there's this mystery of the Holy Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity says that Jesus is God in the flesh, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one. That's one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And yet, it's one we don't really understand. The, the deeper you get into it, the more difficult it, it becomes trying to explain how the Trinity works. Um, and so, What's so strange about the Trinity is we've got Jesus, who's 100% man, but Jesus, who's 100% God, who goes and prays to the Father, which is kind of himself. 
Um, and uh, that's kind of a tricky sort of deal there. Um, I, I, I uh, love that analogy Michael Manser gave for me years and years and years ago now, uh, but it kind of makes, it kind of helps bring the hay down from the loft a little bit. You know, it'd be like if you got in a time machine as, a, as an adult, and if we had one land here on the stage, and you got in there, and you take off into space, uh, and, uh, and then you go through time, and you go to the playground uh, where you were five years old as a kindergartner, uh, go back through time and go through a wormhole or whatever. Uh, and, and then you, you end up, uh, you know, back to the future kind of thing. Um, but there you see your, uh, you know, kindergarten self. What would you tell yourself? Um, see, suddenly your adult self got, got to gain some little uh, space technology of time and space. You were able to break the rule or the laws of time and space. Now, we don't really know how to do that yet. But question, does God know how to do that? Does God know how to break the laws of time and space? Well, we know, in fact, he does. Um, that he, he, the Bible even talks so much about that. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a, is a day. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 15, you might jot that in your notes. Um, the Lord is so much bigger than what our brains can comprehend. I'll just read this to you real quick. Isaiah 40, 12 says, who hath measured the Lord, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the oceans of the world, he gets the hollow of his hand. Um, he, he spans the heavens with his hand. Um, and it says that uh, he hath directed the spirit of the Lord or, uh, or who hath uh, been the Lord's counselor and taught him. Uh, and it says, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the islands as a very big thing. Second Peter 3, like I mentioned earlier, behold, the day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years with the Lord is as a day. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.15 talks about how that which has already been has not yet happened, and that which has already happened has not yet been. Like there's this twisting of time and space when you talk to God in his fullness. So back to our little illustration, if we could have that power to be outside of time and space, could we go visit our kindergarten self? Well, the answer is yes. Um, your kindergarten self would still be limited to time and space. So there you'd go talking to yourself, hey, Brett, five-year-old Brett, watch out for Cindy in fifth grade. Uh, she's a real, run for your life, man. Don't, don't, she's, she's a weirdo. Uh, and and uh, don't take that class in college. Uh, take the other class uh, or, or whatever. You know, like all the mistakes you'd say, watch out for those things because you know you're outside, outside of your little five-year-old self. In, in a way, you can see that because God t takes himself and puts him into the laws of time and space when God becomes a man. And that's Jesus Jesus putting himself in that place of the, the, the kind of to know what we know. Uh, you know, he was tempted in all points like as we were, and he feels our same kinds of difficulties. And for that to happen, God put himself into our situation. But meanwhile, God is also God the Father. So um, I, don't, I don't struggle with the Trinity. Uh, I, I just realize it's a mystery that my brain can't wrap itself around. I think Einstein and his theories of relativity and stuff like that started to tap into some of that, the dimensions and, and various things that you know uh, Einstein and some of those brainiac kind of guys talk about, and, and it makes all of our brains short circuit. But if God's, if God's divine character was easily figured out by me, he wouldn't be big enough to worship, wouldn't you agree? But God is huge. And that's what Isaiah is trying to tell us, man. Who can figure out God? Good luck with that. Because he's way past our uh, ability to understand. So, so when you see Jesus, 
the Son, praying to God the Father. It's a model for us. But also, Jesus in his humanity was demonstrating um, what's important for a, a person who's living outside of time and space. That's such an important deal. Um, you know, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you need to pray? If Jesus, and, and Jesus obviously saw that as, as a real value. In fact, I see this little verse that we've looked at as sort of a model for prayer. Um, in fact, there's three little components of this that I th I'd like to point out if you'd allow me. Uh, and the first one is this idea that he rose up early. It says there, um, and in the morning, rising up a great while before the day. That means before the sun came up, he was out there doing that. Uh, oh, Brett, you know, Jesus didn't have my work schedule. Um, uh, I worked late last night. Do you expect me to get up early? Um, well, it's funny. I worked uh, late last night. Uh, uh, like, it's, it's a funny thing. I, it happens to me all the time where uh, my schedule's weird. As a pastor, um, sometimes you get up really, really early. Sometimes you go to bed really, really late. Um, it's funny, I have to admit, the older I get, that time is starting to widen just a little bit. Um, you can ask anybody, Debbie or anybody. I used to go on two, three hours of sleep a night. Like that was my normal. Uh, up until a few years ago, I'm, I start feeling that in my age now. Um, but if I get six hours of sleep a night now, I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, but, it, but, but at the same time, uh, who was the pastor that said, you know, something like, uh, you know, if you, um, the, the, the idea of prayer is so important. You say, well, I don't have time. I, you know, I'm super busy today. You know, you know, I don't have time for my half hour of prayer. Well, <laughs> then you better make an hour of prayer if you've got a busy day. Uh, that's the idea. We need to be on our knees in prayer. Jesus did it as an example. Obviously, he needed that early in the morning. Psalm uh, chapter five. I love this psalm. Uh, verses one through three. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, uh, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Uh, there's something about the morning, seeking the Lord in the morning. Proverbs 3, uh, pardon me, 8, 17. Um, the Lord says, I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. So this is an interesting truth from the Bible. Jesus demonstrates it, it's all throughout the Bible, Old Testament. Um, and can I just say, you don't go home tonight and set your alarm for 4 a.m. and say, okay, Pastor Red's all gonna get up early, you know. Um, but I would say maybe start a little bit easier than that. Maybe set your alarm 15 minutes early or, or a half hour early and, and just say, okay, I'm gonna spend some time in, the, in prayer and in the word. Um, so the first part of Jesus's model is, is that it was early, Jesus's model for prayer. The second thing is he found a place of solitude. Again, if Jesus needed to pray, we should pray. But if Jesus needed to pray in solitude, how much more should we pray in solitude? And here's a question. Is it easier to find solitude in Jesus's day or our day? Um, I, I think we've, so, we're so connected. Uh, we're so plugged in. And you got your phone and you got all the technology. And man, it's just so hard. The idea of solitude is so unheard of anymore. Um, figure out a way to seek the Lord in solitude. You know, leave your phone out of the equation, out of your pocket, out of reach. Um, some of you start sweating beads of nervous sweat, even as I say that, uh, because we're so connected to our phones and what have you. Uh, but the idea of solitude, such a, such a key. Um, but um, so we see Jesus' model that it was early, um, 
in solitude. Um, and, um, and by the way, I, mean, I forgot to mention this. When Jesus got up early, what was he doing the day before? Did he have a busy day? Well, if you remember last week, we left off back up to verse, what is it, verse 30, um, uh, 32. It says, and at evening, so this is the end of the day before, at evening, when the sun did set, that's right about now, um, it says, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils uh, and suffered not the devils to speak. That's a tough day at work, wouldn't you say? He's casting out demons and healing the sick. By the multitude, the whole city shows up at sundown. That's when his thing's kind of beginning. And then the next day, he gets up a great while before the day. So Jesus kind of takes away all of our arguments, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, I have to work late. So did Jesus, but he still saw value in rising up early and rising up in solitude. Um, you know, um, it's, it's interesting how, how people are so stressed out these days. Um, I, I worry that we, um, we haven't recognized the condition of our peril right now. You know, that we're all stressed out, anxious, where our blood pressures are rising. Um, people are more suicidal, more depressed. Um, and, and I wonder if, if part of that is just so we don't have any time of, of solitude where we get away and seek the Lord in prayer. Um, I, I believe that if you seek the Lord in prayer, there's gonna be huge benefits, body, soul, spirit. Uh, we need to be people of prayer and we need to make that a regular part of our lives. Um, it just goes without saying um, that prayer is powerful. Uh, you know, um, some, some of you are hard, hardcore Calvinists and I worry that sometimes, you know, because, you know, often the, the, the person that believes in God's sovereignty, which we do, totally, God's sovereign, 100%. But at the same time, there's some people that are like, well, God's sovereign, so things are just gonna happen the way they're gonna happen, so we don't really need to pray because God already knows what's gonna happen. What good does prayer have to do? Well, that's if you think prayer is for the purpose of getting your will on earth. But prayer is actually wanting to get God's will uh, in your life and submitting to him. It's not, prayer is not to move the hand of God, but to move the heart of man, to, to line up and to be in sync with God. You and, you and I, the best thing that could ever happen to you is have a godly mindset about everything, to believe about uh, you know, the Lord taking care of you and knowing what's best for you. Uh, that, that aligning, I think, best is, is done in prayer. That alignment happens with the word of God too. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the word and say, is my life in line with scripture? Of course, that's a really good one. That's, but I would say that's the macro version of aligning with the Lord. At least you're not totally off course if you're following the word of God. But prayer is where the Lord does those smaller adjustments and specific that are in your life where you can say, Lord, for me, what would you have for me to do? Not just Athey Creek as a whole, but for me. Uh, by the way, our elders, when we get together and pray, I feel like that's some of the best uh, direction that our church receives. It's not when we have big meetings and talk about all the things Athey Greek's trying to do. It's when we go to the Lord in prayer, we always go out of that time having clarity for what the Lord would have us to do. Um, prayer is so good and, and it's so important. So Jesus demonstrated uh, uh, not only early rising, but solitude. Um, in fact, by the way, uh, in Matthew, do you remember when we read this in Matthew 6, 6? It says, but, what, but thou, when thou prayest, did you see that? Not if, not if you pray. He says, when, in implication, that should be part of your life. It's just assumed by Jesus. Of course, when you pray. 
enter into your closet. Why would you ever enter into your closet? Um, well, it says, when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly. A lot of times people check the prayer box because they prayed at dinner or breakfast or lunch. Um, but is that really what Jesus is talking about here? This, this, this whole uh, uh, description Jesus gives um, is this idea of being in solitude where nobody sees it. How often do you pray when nobody's hearing? Is it, uh, is it a breakfast, lunch, dinner with your family and kids? That's great if you wanna bless the food. But I, I feel like some, some of us check the prayer box because we blessed our peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Is that really deep, spiritual, rooted prayer? Um, that's not really what the Bible sort of indicates as prayer. If you wanna study a great prayer, read like Daniel chapter nine, where Daniel prays a beautiful prayer of confession for a nation and aligning with the Lord and seeking the Father. Like, um, you know, there's so many cool prayers in the Bible that are so worth studying. That's one of my favorite, Daniel chapter nine, which leads to, by the way, one of the greatest prophecies in all the Bible, the 70 weeks of Daniel comes from Daniel seeking the Lord in prayer uh, in his closet where nobody's looking. So we see Jesus uh, rising early in solitude, but we also, and number three, um, it says here uh, in our text, you, you can see these three points right here. Uh, he, in the morning, he in a solitary place, and there he prayed. Well, brothers, isn't that redundant? Jesus' model for prayer, praying, um, no, it's not redundant, I'll tell you why. Because I've done things like this where I plan about praying, I think about praying, I talk about praying, but getting it done, that's, that's the thing. Um, you, you, you can think, you can almost convince yourself that you're doing the right thing just because of things like church. Well, I went to church and Brett prayed a prayer, so I'm a prayer warrior. Uh, I've been, you know, suffering for the Savior in prayer, uh, you know, or, or whatever. Uh, or, you know, I, I find that in all spiritual disciplines. Sometimes we think we're doing what the Bible says because we sat through a Bible study, and because we took the notes, we think we did it somehow. But I, I worry that there's like a, a false security, and well, I, I, I'm doing what the Bible says because I took the notes. Oh, be ye not hearers only, but doers of the word. You know, you gotta put the rubber to the road, you know, pedal to the metal, uh, and, and I would ask, if you're a person of prayer, when are you doing these things? Rising up early, in solitude, and actually carving out some time uh, to pray. Um, if you don't know what to pray about, what do you do? Like you're sitting there, okay, Brett, I'm here, what do I do now? I, I don't have anything to say. One of the things that that is an indication, and I don't wanna be like you know self-righteous or trying to be judgmental, but can I just say, if that's your problem, then I, I do think that there needs to be work on your relationship with the Lord. Um, you know, have you ever, uh, when you were dating, for example, if you went out on a date and you had nothing to say to the other person, uh, or that person had nothing to say to you, would there be a second date? Now, there are a few people like, that's the perfect date. Uh, some of you, uh, some of you are like that, I get that. But, um, <laughs> but, but if you've got nothing to say and nothing interesting to talk about, then, then that means you're a little bit out of sync maybe with that person. Um, have you ever noticed when you, you're, you've got nothing to say at a, at a, you know, you're at a, at a gathering with people and everybody's standing around talking about stuff, but you're just like kind of not, you don't really feel synced up with someone. And then all of a sudden somebody walks up and says something that you kind of, you, 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 it sort of clicks. It'd be like if I'm in a room and there's a bunch of people talking about things like fancy clothes and 
and stuff like that, or makeup, or um, lotion, uh, or hair product. I'd be just like, you know, comatose. But if the person walked up and said something about man, uh, motocross, dirt bikes, suspension, two-stroke motor oil smell when it's burning through the exhaust pipe. Oh, it brings a tear to the eye. I could talk for a week. They should make a cologne out of the, if you want to talk about fragrance, out of the smoke that comes out of a two-stroke from 1971. Hey, that's cool. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. See, when I talk about motocross, uh, the Lord's like, I'm on board with that. <laughs> One Wednesday night, I said, you know, motocross is one of the only sports, the only, it's the only fun sport that, that, you, that has the word cross in it. That's why it's such a Christian sport. Well, this really nice, really tall, skinny guy comes walking up, Brett, cross country. And I said, fun sports. That's why I said fun sports. So anyway. But when you talk to somebody that, that, you're, that you have something that you like to talk about, that means you're probably in sync with them. How important is it for you to be synced up with the Lord where you could sit down for five minutes, half hour, an hour? How about a whole day just spending the day in prayer? Um, I remember one of our early uh, leadership guys, uh, they, they just signed on to be one of our elders. And this is years and years ago. And uh, we were getting, doing a getaway prayer retreat and um, I could tell he was just so nervous. He's like, what do you do? You guys go and pray for 24 hours? What do you say for 24 hours? And it was so funny because I, I could tell he was totally anxious. I said, hey, don't worry. And then he was, can you go to the bathroom? <laughs> like he had all these questions, it was so great. Now the guy's a full on prayer warrior and he gets it. But the, the thing is, um, let me just give you a few things to think about. Um, if you don't have anything to say, one of the things that gets you kind of where you have a relationship, you can talk is um, if, if you want suddenly the Lord's ears to perk up and for you to kind of connect, connect with them on scripture. What are the scriptures that really touch your heart? Uh, well, Brett, I don't read the Bible. Well, then we have a problem. The Lord gave you a love letter right here. So read this first. And then what you do is you, uh, <laughs> boy, the Lord's speaking tonight, I'm telling you, you better be listening. This is great. I need some lightning here in a minute. Uh, we'll get that, that'll add to the effect. Um, but, but um, you know, if you're, if one of the greatest things to do is to pray through some of your favorite verses that have touched your heart, or, or maybe want to have some deep prayer, pray through some of the most convicting verses of the Bible. Oh Lord, I'm so far from this verse right here. How, Lord, how do you want me to change my heart? What do you want me to do? Ask the Lord questions. And, and, and then another thing you can do while you're praying is journal and write down some of the thoughts the Lord puts on your heart because sometimes I think I'm listening and I'm praying, but then the Lord gives me something and you can easily forget that, um, that impression the Lord puts on your heart unless you're willing to kind of jot it down. I mean, prayer doesn't have to be on your knees, folding your hands thus uh, with your heads bowed, you know, and not move from that position. Uh, but prayer can be very active. But Jesus got into a solitary place uh, early in the morning and he prayed to the Father. Uh, man, we could talk about that. We've done whole teachings on prayer, the power of prayer. But it's one of those things I, I feel like it doesn't need more preaching about prayer. We just need to get her done. Uh, that's why I put number three on here. And it's also here, Jesus rose up early in solitude. And he didn't just think about praying or make a list, uh, I better start praying. Uh, he, he did it. He, he engaged in prayer. 
pr- prayer is powerful. Prayer is needful. Why should you pray if you're a, if you're a hardcore you know, Calvinist? Which, which it's so funny. People say, brother, are you a Calvinist or an Arminius? And I'd say, neither or both, whatever you wanna say. Uh, because I think it's a false dilemma. Again, it's like the Trinity. Can you explain God's sovereignty, but also human's res- human responsibility? There's a reason that's been an argument for you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been arguing about this. Um, you know, when you're saved, did God pre-de- pre, you know, predetermine that you, were, that you were saved? I would say 100%, yes. Uh, divine election, God's sovereignty, yes, yes, yes. But did you choose then? Well, that's a contradiction of terms. Did, did you, when you accepted Christ, did you choose? Um, well, the answer is yes. Well, those things don't fit and go together. Again, God's not that small. God knew you were gonna do it, but he also requires you uh, to confess with your mouth and believe your heart. And if you don't do that, if you don't make a, choose, uh, a choice for that, then you know that God must not have sovereignly de- de- you know, elected you. Uh, it, the math doesn't always work out on our level, but with God, I think it really does. So be careful on this debate of Calvinism and Arminianism. And I know some of you are hardcore one way or the other. Great, if you're with me and you're talking about it, say, great, I'm glad you're a Calvinist, that's awesome. Um, if you're an Arminist, great, awesome. Usually, if, depending on who you are, I'll either affirm what you believe or I'll start arguing with you, like I'm the other side. Because I can, that's the funniest part of Calvinism. I feel like I can really argue for Calvinism really strongly but I can also argue for somewhat of Arminianism. And, and I can also, uh, you know, if you're, you're all about, you know, God's already sovereignly done everything. So I, we don't need to do missions. We don't need to pray because God already knows who's gonna be saved. Man, I can show you scriptures that can make you feel like you could lose your salvation tomorrow. Well, Brad, I believe in eternal security. So do I. But you just said lose. Well, we can talk about leaving your salvation or we can talk about were you ever really saved to begin with. Like there's so many nuances. Um, the problem with Calvinism and Arminianism is, is if you really think about it, it's trying to figure out how far we can go and still be okay. I would just say on things of God, let's just be so radical. If you are like, for example, I don't know about God's sovereignty. Did he choose me? Well, let's find out if he chose you. Let's go so radical, accept Christ right now. Repent from your sins and believe and accept the cross of Christ. Then we'll know God sovereignly chose you. It's so simple. Um, But people wanna try to pin that stuff down. Why should we pray if God already knows uh, uh, everything's gonna happen and and the end, he he knows the beginning from the end, why should we pray? Well, there's a couple reasons why you should pray even though God knows how things are gonna turn out. One, because God told us to pray over and over and over again. The Bible says pray, pray without ceasing for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Also, like I said, prayer is not to move the hand of God, but to move the heart of man. Prayer is important for our reset and aligning with the Lord. Um, if, if you could do one spiritual discipline better, which one would you choose? Um, you know, that's something for you to think about. I bet many of us would probably put prayer in that category. Um, really, really important. Um, well, all that to say, uh, Jesus gives us this beautiful model right here in the verse 35. He goes on in verse 36, and um, Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had, uh, they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. Um, this, is, uh, this is interesting. This is, um, you know, when they say all men seek for thee, wow, Jesus' popularity. Remember, Mark goes so fast. It took a while in Matthew for Jesus to start to be known in the community. But here in Mark, we get right to the part where Jesus is now hugely popular and has gone viral 
people are all over the place seeking after. Um, and, and, and by the way, if you look at the Greek uh, text of this, where, where it says, all men seek for thee, there's an implication you miss in the English translation largely, but in the Greek, there's an, a, um, a kind of a, an implication of annoyance. Uh, who's annoyed? Probably the disciples. Jesus, all people are seeking after thee. You know, don't you know there's people looking for you? Um, it's kind of a negative sort of thing. But I want you to note in, in the narrative of the gospel, Jesus is never really driven by urgency. When people want him to urgently go do this or that or the other thing, he almost never does. He doesn't really listen to their demands. Um, I wonder if you should do that with your schedule. Some of you just always do, if somebody demands it, you do it right away. But it's important for you to seek the Lord and say, Lord, is this something that you really want me to do? And do you want me to do it today? I'm not arguing for laziness or lethargy because that was never what Jesus did. But you know, even when Lazarus, his, his great friend was sick, they said, come quickly, you know, Lazarus, the one you love is sick. And Jesus said, okay. But his sickness is not unto death. And he, <clears throat> in some of their minds, they were thinking, oh Lord, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. You, you, an implication that he lollygagged. <clears throat> he should have gone much faster. But Jesus knowing all things, he, he, uh, he is not driven by the crowd or urgent matters. Um, you know, what is Jesus driven to do? Well, let's go look at verse 38. It says, and he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. <laughs> so, so this is great. Uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus, the disciples said, everybody wants to see you. And he says, yeah, we're not gonna talk to those people. We're going to the next town. For those are the people I wanna talk to today. Do you see how Jesus sets the precedent here and the priority? Um, uh, there's a little booklet that was from the, I think back to the 70s maybe, <laughs> um, that where, where it was called Tyranny of the Urgent. Do you guys ever read that little booklet? It's a great little book that talks about, don't be ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. Very important. Um, so Jesus isn't ruled by that. What is he driven to do? To go to the next town. He came forth to preach, it says there in verse 30, uh, 38. What was Jesus preaching about? Um, well, we know that if you back up to verse 14 and 15, go back to the back uh, beginning of this chapter, verse 14. Now after that, John was put into prison. Jesus came uh, into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching the gospel uh, is, is what Jesus was all about, which is the good news. And the kingdom, the kingdom is uh, both, uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, which speaks of his church and his people. Um, some people try to say that we live in the kingdom now dominion theology, and we gotta live for the kingdom right now. Um, well, well, I believe that that's a wrong teaching. Um, if you're living for the kingdom now, uh, you believe we're living in the kingdom era, uh, that's really depressing. Uh, because the kingdom of God is defined, like in Daniel chapter nine, as an end of sin, end of transgression. Um, you know, there's, there's no more suffering. It's like the kingdom's gonna be a beautiful time when Christ is ruling from the throne in Jerusalem. So watch out for that kingdom now kind of teaching. It, it sounds so nice and like it's the right thing to do to be fighting for the kingdom of God. That sounds pretty good. It's just what they mean that actually will get you off, off course. Um, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, literal meat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
Um, we, we are part of the kingdom because we have the king of kings in our hearts, in our lives. The church, we're part of his kingdom. Being part of what the Bible teaches and what the church is supposed to be, it's really simple. There's some people out there that wanna complicate and make it seem esoteric to be a, a Christian of the kingdom. If you hear that kind of teaching, just a little red flag, be careful. I think it can be dangerous kind of teaching. But um, Jesus is teaching about his kingdom that will come. He made that really clear. He even told us to pray that way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for his coming kingdom. Uh, that's pretty cool. Well, we go on in verse uh, uh, 39. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Um, by the way, uh, for years when I took uh, Athe Greekers to Israel, we would go to a, a synagogue, the one I showed you Sunday, the synagogue of Capernaum. And um, I always mention the, the foundation of that synagogue is the same one that Jesus taught in. Um, but, it, but there's a layer up on it that was built up for like 500 years later. And then the pillars and the other stuff you see is about 500 years after Christ. So it's, it's kind of not really the synagogue, but it sort of is. Um, but I remember a few, maybe, a, I don't remember, a decade ago, they found another synagogue when they were digging for a hotel in Magdala, um, right there on the Sea of Galilee. And in Magdala, they found a first century synagogue just as it would have sat. And it was destroyed during an earthquake and a landslide. So it was destroyed right about the time of Christ. Um, so it would have been the, the synagogue of Jesus's time. And this verse that we just read, he preached in, in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee. Um, and you think, oh, all of Galilee, that's a huge space. That'd be like saying Jesus preached in, in the synagogues throughout all of Dundee. Uh, Galilee is not a huge reason, region. You know, you think, oh, all of Galilee. But the, the reason that's so cool is you, it's one of the few places in Israel, when you look at the synagogue there in Magdala, uh, by the way, this next trip that we're taking in November, we're staying at a hotel right at that synagogue. So like, it's gonna be kind of fun to, to actually hang out there. Um, but but that, uh, that synagogue is... Uh, the first century time of Jesus. So it's like 99.9999% sure we believe Jesus probably taught from that very place. You can actually see the rock structure he would have stood at reading the scrolls of the Torah. Uh, like it's really kind of a pretty cool find, the, the, the synagogue at Magdala. But anyway, uh, all that to say, um, we'll be there. Uh, we'll bring pictures for those of you that can't go this year, uh, but next time maybe. Uh, verse 40, there came a leper to him beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, if thou will, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken immediately, the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Um, this is the same story we went over in the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus touched the leper, leper um, uh, there in Matthew chapter eight. It's also in Luke chapter five. So we, we really did a whole Sunday morning on this story of the cleansing of the leper. You can kind of look that up if you want. But um, just remember, leprosy in the Bible is a type, a picture of sin. Um, and it's such a perfect picture of sin. Leprosy is that loathsome disease that starts small on your body and gets big and it's ultimately deadly. What a perfect picture. The leper would usually see some flaky white uh, part of his skin 
usually the extremities, the tips of fingers or ears or nose, like tips of toes, you'd start to uh, see flakiness and then you'd also lose sensitivity. Um, you know, a lot of times people, you'll hear stories about people how they, um, you know, their toes and arms and legs fall off when they have leprosy. Um, and there's jokes about that and all, which is kind of horrifying. But, um, but it wasn't that their leprosy doesn't make your toes fall off or your nose fall off. Um, what happens is you lose sensitivity. And when you go to the leper colony and the stench of the leprosy, it ca- causes rats and rodents when you're asleep at night and you can't feel you lose all sensitivity. So what happens is, you know, literally rodents would come and eat your extremities off. I know that's gross, but I'm just telling you the truth. And also, um, sometimes if you stubbed your toe really bad and you didn't feel it because you lost all feeling and then it could get infected and it caused all kinds of trouble that way. Um, The reason that's an important imagery for you to know, the Bible uses leprosy as a type of sin. And boy, how perfect it is. It eats you away. You lose sensitivity. The more you sin, the the less sensitive you are towards sin. And um, what a horrible thing it is, leprosy, that loathsome disease. I'm so glad it's not on earth as it it was then. Uh, They figured out how to eradicate biblical form of leprosy. Um, But if you were a leper, it would be unlawful for you to be in public. You had to go to a leper colony. You had to walk walk down the street yelling out, unclean, unclean, and people would run for their lives when they'd see you. Um, But the the, the thing I love about this, and and Mark's gospel, um, you know, uh, emphasizes this in verse 41. Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and, and touched him. I love that Jesus would touch the leper uh, because he didn't have to. Jesus could have, you know, seen the guy coming. Hey, hold on a second. Be thou clean, fifty feet away or hundred yards away. You know, uh, you know, he could have been more like me, a little more of a germaphobe, and say, "Oh yeah, you could stay over there." Oh, if I had the power to heal at hundred feet, I'd do that. But Jesus, why did he touch him? Well, he was moved with compassion, and I love that Jesus was willing to touch the leper, and he wasn't afraid to touch the leper. By the way, do you know the Lord can protect you from harmful things, especially if you're serving Christ? If you're on the mission, serving Jesus, then then you don't have to worry about things as much as like if you're just living your own life. Um, You know, when I was um, a young guy, I I led worship at a small Bible study that Chico Holiday uh, was the Bible study. If you're really old here, you might remember Chico Holiday. He was a famous Las Vegas singer. Uh, you know, Elvis and Chico Holiday were all kind of right there together, uh, Chico Holiday. But he uh, became a Christian and a really cool guy. And Chico and I became buddies uh, and I led worship for his Bible study. And he was a pastor there in, uh, uh, I think, Yorba Linda for a while, California. But um, but Chico told me a story that just cracked me up because uh, he, he would go around playing. Once he became a Christian, he left Las Vegas and started going around churches and playing his guitar and music and, and stuff and quite a performer, you know. But he, he, um, he would get booked at churches, just kind of indiscriminate churches that wanted Chico Holiday to come do music. So he was down in Texas one time and he was on the stage, he started doing his concert and all of a sudden these, these deacons came walking out with these boxes um, and they, they, they started opening these boxes and in the boxes, there were rattlesnakes. And they started passing rattlesnakes around the church. Have you ever heard about snake handlers? Uh, it's a thing. Uh, fortunately, it's not as big of a thing as it was back then. Uh, this article was just from January um, in The Guardian. Uh, it's called Hiss Story. Uh, the last 
church, snake handling church in West Virginia. Uh, and they did a whole article on this church uh, where they handle the snakes and stuff. And there was a picture I couldn't show you. One of the guys that was a worship leader in this church got bit by a rattler and his arm was black and he was laying in the hospital. Uh, didn't, it must not been that good at handling snakes or whatever. Um, why, have you ever heard of this? How many of you guys have heard of snake handling before? Okay, so most of you. Yeah, why would any church think that's a thing to do? Because um, that's such a stupid thing. Like, what are, what are these people doing? Uh, well, it is stupid. Uh, I'm, I'm sad, sad to say that people are just being dumb because they're not interpreting the scriptures rightly. Where do they get this? Well, the idea comes from the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 16 of Mark, it says in verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the great commission, by the way. We're all called, we're all called to do this. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Notice, by the way, the believing and baptized hand in hand. Those two things go together. Remember people that are baptized as infants, can they believe and be baptized at the same time? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now, by the way, some people make the mistake right here. Rather than letting signs and wonders follow them, they're pursuing signs and wonders. Churches get off course on this when they're chasing after signs and wonders, miracles. Ooh, we're gonna have a snake service or we're gonna have a Holy Ghost happening and they're chasing after the signs and wonders. Big goof. I believe in signs and wonders in the church even today, but they're gonna be naturally following the believer, not the believer pursuing that. These snake handlers, well, uh, it says, uh, these signs and wonders shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils and they shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So these churches, this church I showed you the picture of, they, they, have, uh, they drink poisonous concoctions and stuff like that uh, to prove that God is with them and then they go to the hospital. Uh, what's, what's going on there? Well, they're not really getting the context of what the Lord's saying there. The context is on the mission field. When you go out and do things serving Christ in dangerous places, going into all the world to preach the gospel, a perfect example of this is when Paul the Apostle was on his missionary journey, he ends up on a ship, shipwrecked on an island. And remember he's gathering wood for the prisoners and everything and to have a fire and suddenly a viper comes out and bites his arm as he's on his mission, on the mission field, the snake bites him. And remember when he doesn't die, they all are amazed because the Lord saves him from the snake venom. <laughs> That's the context, by the way, by which uh, the Lord protects us. I can honestly say I, I've, I've felt this in my own life. Uh, uh, one time I remember I was in, uh, when, when we landed in Burkina Faso years and years ago, my first trip to Burkina, um, when we went out in the bush, they said, Brett, whatever you do, you cannot drink the water there in the, in the bush. You gotta have bottled water. And I did, man, I st stuck with that, bottled water. Um, but, but as we uh, were at this one house, and it's, it's hard to even do, the, do this story justice, but this, you know, we were uh, eating their food and stuff like that, which was interesting. Uh, one place we had goat head soup where they killed a couple goats and they boil the heads and the eyeballs. And it's a real privilege if you get a couple eyeballs in your, in your soup. And I did, they gave me a couple eyeballs. When you crunch them, they sort of pop. Um, and then there's a little lens and you can actually feel the lens in the eyeball. Is that too much information? You guys look, some of you guys look a little sick. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, but it was 120 degrees and I was eating this hot soup. Uh, it was just a little, I was like, oh boy. 
But the, it wasn't the goat head soup that got me. There was this really sweet African lady. We were literally, like, I can't tell you how far out in the bush we were. There was nobody speaking English. There was no modern anything. We were in a mud hut with a grass roof with this lady in her house. And she was so graciously serving. And, um, and, and then I saw her get us these glasses, these little Tupperware cups, and she filled them out of a, a water tank that it was sitting, it was just a big vase in the corner of her hut. And she filled up the cups with water. And then, uh, it's hard to even do this justice, but she reaches up into this special little compartment in her mud hut and she pulled out this little, do uh, you remember the little Kool-Aid packages with the Kool-Aid? She pulled out one that looked really old, like she'd been saving it for a special occasion. It had already been opened and it looked like it'd been around her house there for a long time. But she took the, the, the cups that, that I had and, and my, the guy that I was traveling with and she just tapped a few little speckles of the red Kool-Aid in there. Uh, and, and I could just tell, it was like for her, that was pulling out the fine wine, you know, the vintage, you know. And, and she sat it down at our table. And, and the guy that I was with, he was, he was a seasoned Africa traveler and he looked at me and just said, don't do it, don't do it. But this verse came to my mind, you can drink a deadly poison. And, and I just, my, my, I think my heart was so moved by this sweet woman. It's kind of like if I, if I drink this and I get really, really sick, uh, so be it. Because this woman gave her best. And it was just too much for me to just say, um, no, thanks. Yeah, I know you put your little Kool-Aid in there. Uh, I don't like Kool-Aid, like, or whatever. I wasn't gonna say that. Um, so I drank it down. And my buddy on the way home was like, you're gonna pay the price, you know? Uh, it's, it's like 100%, you're, you're down for the count. And I felt better the next day after having her a few specks of Kool-Aid than I've ever felt. Like, like it's, it's just a funny thing. I, I really do believe the Lord blessed that, even though everybody told me, don't do it. And I understand, uh, and I'm perfectly normal right now. So, uh, uh, no, no, I'm just, uh, no, I, I, I really am fine from that. I did not get sick but they shall take up serpents, they shall drink deadly thing. The context is the mission field. You're serving the Lord, doing things for the, for the Lord. And, and I, I think that it's so cool to be able to live without fear when you're doing the work of the Lord. That's the context, not sitting in your church in Texas, passing around snakes, totally missing the point altogether. The reason I say that is too many people live in fear today. And especially, I, I wish we could have more and more people that are willing. If you ever wanna like study some great people, look, like read all of Jim Elliott's writing or Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, Jim Elliot was a young guy, died very young uh, on the mission field, but man, lived more life in his 20 something years than just about any of us put together. Like he, he, he was an amazing missionary who lived on the edge. But I digress. Um, uh, all that, I have to admit though, when I was blessing this food in Africa, it changed my tone just, oh Lord, you know, bless, please. Bless this meal. You know, I changed my prayer. It wasn't just God is good, God is good. Down with the Kool-Aid, you know. I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, well, all that to say, uh, I love this. Um, so um, uh, where do we take it from here? So verse 43, it says, and he straightly charged him and forthwith set him away. Um, and said unto him, see thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way and show thyself uh, to the priest and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was with, uh, without the, in desert places and they came to him from every quarter. 
Don't you love this? This, this poor guy who's so excited being cleansed as a leper, um, and yet he, uh, he, he was told by Jesus not to publish. Why did Jesus not want him to publish this? Um, because he, he really had more to do in the towns, and this would sort of limit his ministry. Isn't this interesting? Because Jesus could have done whatever he wanted, but he was still sort of allowing his own ministry to even be at the mercy of this guy's compliance. Um, this, this is something that makes me wonder, am I the one who's messing up Jesus's plans? Because this guy, bless his heart, I can, I can relate. I mean, he was a leper, stuck in a leper colony. Suddenly he's healed and I would go around going, I'm healed, look, I'm cleansed. Jesus told him exactly what to do, but he, he kind of didn't do that. And, and so because of that, it makes you wonder, what could Jesus have done more if that guy would have complied in obedience to Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, oh, but Brad, he's just a guy who's, you know, yeah, but, what, but the question is, are there people that missed out because of this guy's not doing exactly what Jesus asked him to do? Um, and by the way, uh, Jesus, one of the reasons I think Jesus doesn't want people to do that, know about this is Jesus knows what we're learning already, things we learned last week. Are miracles ever really producing solid faith? No, miracles don't produce faith. And Jesus knows that. Uh, and that's why Capernaum would go down cursed. We talked about that on Sunday. Um, and so uh, the, the reason Jesus said, don't go tell anybody, because the miracle wouldn't produce faith. But faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's what Jesus was all about. Preaching the word, the gospel, the kingdom. That's what Jesus was all about. Well, that brings us to uh, Mark chapter two. Uh, verses one through 12, we covered on Sunday. Let's just read through that to keep the context. It says in verse one, and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together insomuch as there was no room in, uh, to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they, covered, uh, they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, uh, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason these, uh, ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Um, one of the things I like reading through the story again on a Wednesday night after covering it on a Sunday um, is because for some of you, especially if you're newer to your faith and Christianity and you were here on Sunday, um, did you notice how many things you know about that already? Stuff that maybe, you know, by not studying, you might not know. Um, like Jesus rhetorically asked the question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Which one is, is easier to say? Anybody? Do I have to preach Sundays all over again? <laughs> Take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven. Which one's the easier to say? 
take up your bed and walk, which normally we would say, that's, that's the one that's hard because you know, that's miracle and you can say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus taught us something in this story when he said, you know, implication rhetorically in his discussion, you know, to, to, all Jesus had to do for the bed thing was to just speak it. But for him to declare that man's sins forgiven, he had to shed his own blood on a cross and die for the sins of that man. Um, you know, there's so much about the story that we covered on Sunday. If you missed that, um, then we can uh, pick it up. Uh, you can look at it online. It's a, such an important and great story. So much to learn from this story. Well, verse 13, he went forth again by the seaside and all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. I love this word resorting uh, because um, that's what, you know, people think they need a rest. So they go to a resort in Mexico or Hawaii, which I'm not knocking that. That's great if you want to do that. But you know, if you really want real rest, you enter into the author of rest, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Um, seeking Jesus, spending time with Jesus. There's a resorting that these people did. And I think sometimes that's the very thing that we need. But I love it that Jesus, as they resorted, he, uh, he ends up teaching and preaching with all these people that were coming. Well, verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, who's surnamed uh, Matthew, by the way, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So this is now, remember in chapter one, we saw Jesus choose four of the apostles. Um, and, and now Jesus is choosing Matthew. What a different deal though. The, the first four were fishermen. Now we have a tax collector. Um, and he says, follow me. Do you wonder what the fishermen were thinking at this time? Did the fishermen like tax collectors? Nobody liked tax collectors to this very day. I'm sorry if you're a tax collector, but we hate you. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, if you're, a, I mean, taxes, like who likes tax? But, but it was worse in Bible times because the tax collectors were also thieves. They would, you know, they, the Romans would allow them to sort of charge and they'd have to pay a certain amount of tax for, for the Roman empire, but the tax collector could pocket any extra money he could pull from people. So the tax collectors were wealthy but they were sinful. Um, and by the way, have you ever heard in the Bible, you know, this, this phrase, publicans and sinners? And some of you are like, why does the Bible say that? What about Democrats? Um, well, it's not Republicans. The word publican, if you look it up in the Greek, it, it, the Greek word for publican is, the, is, is interpreted tax collector. So a publican was a tax collector. Do you understand that? Um, now that said, why would you always see the tax collector and sinners, all, sinners put in the same phrase? And here's why, the, the righteous people, the, the religious people, the people that were Christ or you know, God-fearing, uh, Bible-believing Christian type people, they wouldn't hang out with the tax collector because he was sinful and evil. And he would, so he didn't have any friends. So what he would do is he'd have big parties at his house and who would show up? Who would, who would be willing to show up at the tax collector's house on his dime, drinking his wine, uh, having his music, uh, living large in his house? Well, it would be the harlots, the, uh, the sinners, the thieves, the, the, you know, the, the people that were not in good standing in the community. And they became sort of a thing. So this guy, Levi, surnamed Matthew, um, has a, probably a nice house. We're gonna see his house used um, in the gospels. Um, and people are gonna go to his house for like shindigs. That's kind of what happens. And, and, and in fact, in this story, we're gonna see that take a turn as Jesus calls this guy. The, um, the, the Romans disliked tax collectors, but they used them, but they were hated by the Jews. 
So the way they would socialize is they'd have wealthy parties and bring in the wild party people. Uh, so that's the way it rolled. Well, we see that in verse 15. It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is such a, a key part of the story. Um, and, and man, we could talk about this, and we did when we were in Matthew as well. But here, the idea is Jesus was not uh, uncomfortable hanging around with publicans and sinners. And yet, he didn't partake in his sin. One of the things we gotta always remember about Jesus is he never sinned, even though he's hanging out with these sinners. And if you follow Jesus' ministry, he was always the hammer, not the nail. Um, are you a hammer or are you a nail? Um, are you the one that's always being pounded into submission with whoever you hang out with? Or are you the one who's influencing the people around you to be driven more into your, your uh, you know, category? Jesus was the hammer. Uh, not in a bad sense, but uh, he, would, he would not be pounded by the, the, you know, the publicans and sinners and the prostitutes. He would have them come and they would start being like him rather than him becoming like them. Be careful about that. I know guys that say, I'm just being like Jesus, hanging out with publicans and sinners. So after work, I go to the bar and swig the brews with the boys and, and shoot pool and listen to you know, old music and karaoke, bad karaoke and all that. Uh, that's what I do. But are you being the, the light of the world in that, in that place? Are people coming to Christ and repenting, falling at your feet saying, what must I do to be saved? Because uh, if that's happening, well, maybe you do have a ministry in bars. But if you're there partaking in the sin there at the bar, uh, which is pretty easy to do, uh, then you're not being like Jesus. I, I hear that from time to time. People think, oh, I'm just hanging out with publicans and sinners. Meanwhile, there's a whole nother group of people that would never even today set foot in a place or, or have people over to their house that are publicans and sinners. Uh, there's, are, are there some of us today that would never, speaking of publicans and Democrats, are there some of you that would never have a Democrat over to your house for dinner? By the way, they've asked this question in polls and it's really an interestingly one-sided thing, uh, how most Democrats will not have a Republican over for dinner, but there are more Republicans that will have Democrats. They've done studies on this, you can look it up. Um, but, um, but still as Christians, we should be willing to love even the people that are caught up in sinful things and not be afraid to preach the gospel, but always with the intent of leading them to Christ and pointing them to Jesus. Um, it's, it's funny because when Jesus says this in verse 17, they that are whole have uh, no need of the physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, who would have they thought to be the righteous? Did you know the word, you know, those two words, the righteous, was a self-given title the religious leaders gave themselves? We are the righteous. Which is sort of correct in that, remember Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So the Jews who believed God before the New Testament, they were counted as righteous. So they were called the righteous. But they became a self-righteous, kind of a, you know, a we're better than them kind of a righteousness. But Jesus says, I haven't come to save the righteous, but to lead sinners and call them to repentance. Um, I wonder if some of you need to have a Levi party at your house or a Matthew party at your house where you invite your neighbors over. 
oh, but Brad, my neighbor cusses, and oh, my virgin ears, I can't hear that you know, in my house. Well, you know, I understand if you have kids and you're raising little kids, I can understand that. But if you're in a place where you can have those people over and invite them over and have time to talk with them and share the gospel, I wonder if some of us need to be not so afraid of um, loving on, sharing the gospel. So many lost people that need to hear the good news. Well, verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees um, used to uh, fast. And they come and say unto him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees uh, and of the Pharisees fast, but why, uh, but, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Um, by the way, did you know in the Talmud, the writings of the Jews, um, all disciplines were no longer required when you were at a wedding feast. In other words, if you were fasting or praying or whatever, you could drop all that at a wedding because a wedding was meant to be fully celebratory. The bride and the bridegroom were there at the time of celebration, so you needed to be able to be a part of the levity and the fun. Um, that's the imagery Jesus is saying. Hey, um, those guys, John the Baptist fasted because the bridegroom wasn't there. Question, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Question, who's the bride? The church of Jesus Christ. We're called the bride of Christ uh, several times in the scriptures. Um, that's an interesting thing. Um, and as Christians, see, fasting is a good thing. It's funny how people um, can make sort of a legalistic thing out of fasting. And they can sort of do it in a, in a way that's, um, well, if you really wanna be spiritual, as spiritual as we are, then you will fast and pray. Um, and it gets really kind of heavy. Now, um, you're saying, Brett, you're the last guy I didn't listen to anything on fasting. Um, uh, and it's true, I do enjoy food. But I do see value in fasting, and I've done seasons of times where I've done fasting, and I found it to be helpful, and it's good. But at the same time, I, I, I just wanna make a little bit of a pushback on some of the holier-than-thou kind of mentality, because does the bride of Christ have Jesus with them right now? Well, we, we sort of do, don't we? Um, Christ is in you. We have Christ in us. Um, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't fast. I'm just saying if you're doing it because, you know, some holy legalistic thing, that's the problem. Um, you know, that's going back to kind of more Old Testament. Even John the Baptist was considered kind of Old Testament here. Um, there is value, and I've told you there's a great book called God's Chosen Fast. If you look that up, it's an old book that really kind of spells out fasting and the value of fasting. But make sure that you don't make some kind of legalistic thing out of it. Um, I, I think that it is interesting that people talk more about fasting today when they're uh, working out and wanting to do the intermittent fasting. And people talk about fasting for health reasons. Good for you. That's great if you want to do that stuff. Uh, that's just a whole separate deal. If you're fasting for the purposes of prayer and fasting, then you wanna follow more of the biblical model for that. Um, but, uh, but I find it interesting that Jesus said, the reason we're not fasting is because the bridegroom is here. Jesus is talking about himself. Um, and I believe we are the bride and, and we, we get to have Christ with us. Christ is in you uh, and we are in Christ Jesus. So I don't think we have to legalistically say you, you must always fast or do it like the, you know, uh, the, the Muslims on Friday and during Ramadan and stuff. It gets really bad in the Middle East because the, the Muslims are grouchy on those days uh, of Ramadan when they're fasting during the day. Uh, you know, have you ever seen a Muslim who's hangry? 
Uh, that, that's during Ramadan. Uh, I've been there in the Middle East. It's because they can't eat until sundown. And so they close their shops early and they go home and start picking out once the sun goes down. But uh, it's, it's funny how that legalism can sort of be a, a bummer. Uh, but it's got great purpose too. Well, the purpose is to draw near to Jesus and they're already with Jesus. That's, that's the idea with fasting. Um, but um, it says uh, in verse 20, it says, but the days will come when uh, the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on, on an old garment else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old and the rent is made worse. No man puts new wine in old bottles, else new wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles be marred, but the new wine must be put in new bottles. What's this about new wine and wineskins and, and the, the piece of cloth on another piece of cloth? What's going on here? And why does Jesus talk about, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them? Um, and in those days, they shall fast. It has to do with the law. We're talking about the law. You can't put the law over the, the new covenant, if you would. If that, that, I'm giving you really fast terms here. So when you fast, it's not out of legalism. It's out of more of a love. It's a response. Um, because, you know, the Lord's not literally with us as he's here in this story, uh, the bridegroom, but we have Christ in us. So it's more of a get-to. Fasting is a get-to, not a got-to. Once it becomes legalism, uh, anything that comes from the law, we are no longer under the law. So the new wine, old wineskins, it'll burst the, the wineskins, it says. Old clothing patched with a new cloth, um, how does that work out? Well, if you are into fabrics and stuff like that, if you uh, sew a patch onto a pair of Levi's, which nobody does these days, uh, how holy Levi's are, are hip and cool. Um, by the way, I found this, um, this, is, this is, how much do you think these jeans cost today? <laughs> now, if you look at these jeans, they look like they're maybe right off of Burnside. Uh, maybe um, you, somebody got, gave you those. How much would you pay? Because these are actually on sale uh, by Bel uh, Balenciaga. Is that how you say that? Uh, that very godless company. Uh, no wonder Balenciaga is selling these. But how much would you pay for these pants? <laughs> Well, if you want, you can have these, these pants, uh, these men's destroyed baggy jeans as they're called. And all you have to pay is $2,450 for those jeans. Yeah. Now, why did I tell you that? I have no idea. <laughs> oh yeah, old, old, old garment. If you were to put patches on these jeans, if you use a brand new piece of denim and you put it on the holy jeans, when you wash them, the new denim shrinks and will rip uh, the, the old garments that's already been washed a bunch of times. Um, these pants are beyond repair, if you ask me, and should not be worn by humans. Um, but uh, the, the idea uh, is, you know, it's like trying to patch up the old with the law of the Old Testament, um, and, and, uh, and then we have the new covenant. They don't commingle. You can't have them both sewn together. You can't put, you know, new wineskins and old, old uh, new wine and old wineskins because it has to do with the fermentation process and the gas is released by the fermenting and it'll blow up like a water balloon, the wineskin. You have to make sure everything uh, fits together. And that's what Jesus was, or, you know, what Paul was telling us, I should say, in Galatians chapter three. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, um, shut up unto the the faith which should afterwards be revealed. That's the old. Um, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. It served a purpose to bring us to Christ 
that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. That's the new covenant. So we're not under the Old Testament law. And boy, you might mark and remember Galatians 3, 23 through 25, because there's still so much confusion on this. The big question when people say, what are we supposed to do? Believe the Bible? Uh, remember when Obama said that before he was president? He said, what are we gonna do? Believe the Bible and take our children out and stone them outside of the city? Um, that's a guy that didn't know how the Bible works. The Old Testament law, the point is it does kill and we all deserve death. But good news, that's the old law that was never gonna save one person. The Bible makes that clear. So that law was meant to turn us around and say, that's a dead end. Don't wanna go down that way. So we turn to Christ. And that schoolmaster, the law, drove us to Christ, where then we're not justified by rock throwing, we're justified by faith. And after faith has come, when you become a Christian and believe in Christ, you no longer have the need for the law. And that's what happens when you try to mingle the law with um, the new covenant. That's why old wineskins don't go in, uh, uh, new, have new wine in old wineskins. Doesn't work, same with the material. Does that make sense? Um, it's important to see what Jesus is saying. These guys in this day would have understood this because it was so much culturally clear. Um, so, um, uh, you know, what I'm so thankful for though is you say, Brett, we went through the Old Testament and I'll bring up my famous wall again. Uh, these are the 613 laws. Uh, 613 laws of the Old Testament. Um, and, and remember, how many of these do you have to keep if you're gonna be declared righteous? All. And what happens if you blow just one of them? You're toast. You're gonna fail. Um, so this, this law was meant to be, oh, wow, that's impossible. You can't do that. And it's supposed to drive us to the person of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this law. He was the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. And then he says, we're not gonna go with an old and dead way, the law and the, the sacrificial system. We're gonna go by a new and living way. Uh, not just the Old Testament uh, law, but that points us to the New Testament, the new covenant. Um, to understand the, the new um, to, the, to its fullest, we need to understand this. If you don't understand this, you won't fully understand the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter five, uh, verses 17 and 18 says, um, you know, think not that I am come to destroy the law, Jesus said, or the prophets. I have not come to destroy it, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle. That's like no dotting of an I or crossing of a T will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Um, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Well, um, back to our study here. Look at uh, verse 23. It says, and it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? Okay, let's see if anybody remembers from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, was it not lawful for uh, Jesus and his disciples to pick corn on the Sabbath? Anybody? Was it, was it against the law? Was Jesus breaking, here, I'll put it real easy for you. Was Jesus breaking the law? Obviously not. Um, but why would these guys say that if, that if that was true? If Jesus wasn't the breaking the law, anybody wanna jump in? What, was, what were they reciting or talking about? Yes, I think I heard some of you. See, here's the thing. The, the, the Jews had the law that was from God, but then they expanded upon it and said, oh, we're gonna make sure you really don't break the law. And so they, they added their, what, what I'm gonna call traditions 
to the Old Testament law. The wall that I just showed you that had the 613 laws did not say you couldn't pluck corn uh, on the Sabbath. Um, but as it turns out, they said, nobody can pluck corn on that because that will constitute work. And it, it got weirder and weirder. If you wore false teeth, you had to take your false teeth out of your mouth on the Sabbath because you're carrying teeth and that constitutes work. So you're doing work on the Sabbath. Was that biblical in Hebrew Bible biblical? No, that was just people being stupid missing the whole point. And Jesus is gonna call them out on this. Check it out. As we continue here, um, Jesus calls them out in verse 25. Uh, he said, and he said unto them, have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungry and, and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of uh, Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful to eat, but for the priests and gave also to them which were with him. Now, if you remember your Bible, 1 Samuel 21, there's a story there where David's running from King Saul. He and his men are starving. They have no weapons. It's kind of a dire situation. So David goes to Nob. Remember the place Nob? It's a place where they made doorknobs, so they called it that. No, uh, no, it's just called Nob. And uh, he goes in there and, um, and there, he says, man, do you have any bread? Me and my men are starving. Uh, and he said, what are you guys doing? And David, it's quite a story. David lied, I'm on a mission from the king. He was actually running from the king. But he said, I'm on a mission from the king and I need some, we need some bread. Well, we don't have any bread except for the table of showbread that's here you know, for the purpose of worship you know, and it's not lawful. But David said, yeah, but my men are hungry. So let's, let's get the bread out. There's men dying here. So they fed David the bread from the table of showbread. Remember the rest of the story? He says, do you have any weapons? No. Oh, we do have one. Remember the sword you took from Goliath? It's on display in our trophy case out in the hall. Uh, so they pull out the sword of Goliath and give it to David at that point. Uh, it's a great story. Um, but I love what Jesus does here because uh, what Jesus was doing was not actually breaking the law. What David did was actually breaking the rules of the, of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing here is teaching us a principle. Um, is it better to be legalistic even at the expense of people dying? You can't eat at the table of showbread because I don't care if your men are starving. No, as it turns out, Jesus is making the point, they fed David's men because they were gonna die unless they got some food. And so it was right that they, you might just say this, Jesus was proving that love supersedes the law. Um, even though Jesus wasn't breaking the law, Jesus is making the point, you guys have been way too stuck in your trying to keep the laws so hard, you're missing the point. And that's when he dives into the Sabbath day. Remember, they, by this time they made the Sabbath day a crazy, crazy issue. And we finish with this in verse 27. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Um, it's, it's kind of the same thing as the bridegroom thing. When you got the bridegroom there, uh, forget everything else, forget fasting, because you got the bridegroom there. But if you have the Lord of the Sabbath, then do you have to keep all the Sabbath rules when you have the Lord of the Sabbath there? Do you have to be legalistic about it? No, and he, and he says, man was not made for the Sabbath. See, the Jews had got it backwards, the tail wagging the dog kind of thing. Um, the Jews got it backwards. It's not about you know, uh, keeping the Sabbath, just for the sake of keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath day principle was meant to be a blessing for man, not a curse. And Jesus makes that argument and he'll continue to make that argument throughout his ministry. And we'll see that as we continue through the Bible. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us not to be legalistic about religious practices. Um, we know that love should always supersede the law. 
I pray that we wouldn't do stuff out of duty or just out of ritual or um, thinking that we just have to. But Lord, I pray that we would see what we do as not a got to, but a get to. That we get to open our Bibles and we get to pray and we get to fast and we get to go to church on, on a Sunday and, or a Saturday and we get to serve you and walk with you. And, and Lord, forgive us where we become like the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders who are doing stuff just for the sake of doing stuff. Help us not to um, get mixed up and the wrong precedent set. Uh, legalism, Lord, looks so ugly and I pray that it would not be found here at Athey Creek but I pray that love would abound for they'll know we're, our, we're, we're disciples by our love one for another. So help us with that, Lord. And give us understanding as we continue through these stories of the gospel. Lord, I pray your blessing on these, your people, as they've spent this time in your word tonight. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.